Michael S. Bryant is a professor of history and legal studies specializing in the impact of the Holocaust. He's based at Bryant University in Smithville, Rhode Island. Among his many writings, he co-edited and wrote an essay with several contributors in a book titled Hitler's Mein Kampf and the Holocaust. In the introduction to the 16 essays, the editors point out that when the Bavarian government's copyright to Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf lapsed on January the 1st, 2016, the opportunity to reissue the book in German arose for the first time since 1945, 70 years earlier. Before we get to this week's episode, we want to take a minute to ask for your help. Your financial support will ensure that C-SPAN can continue to produce podcasts that inform you about national politics, introduce you to the latest nonfiction books, and provide valuable historical context to today's news. Make a donation today and be a part of C-SPAN's future. Visit c-span.org donate. Professor Michael Scott Bryant, when you hear the words Mein Kampf, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Of course, the title, um, Mein Kampf, is German for my struggle. And that was not the original um, title of the book. The, the original title was, was some um, almost unpronounceable uh, polysyllabic mess of my struggle against seven and a half years of stupidity, lies, and deceit, or something to that effect. I can't remember the precise wording, but it was very, very long and very... Uh, very ponderous, and um, his his editors had the had the good sense to uh, trim it back to just to to my my struggle. And um, it's an unusual title, I think, for for a book for an autobiography written by a man who um, was around thirty years of age, maybe a little 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 past thirty at the time that he wrote wrote this book. Um, my struggle. What, what what is it exactly that he was struggling with or against? It, it becomes fairly clear if you if you delve into the pages of Mein Kampf that the book is is really designed as a way to to burnish his credentials as uh, as the leader of this right wing political party, this political movement, the National Socialist German Workers Party, which was just one of well over a hundred hard right parties in Weimar Germany at the time. When he was writing this book, he was rising as the kind of the uh, the uh, the star of the party, the future leader of the party. But it, it had not it was not yet a done deal. He was still trying to uh, to fortify his position as the leader of his own party, let alone of this larger folk national movement that he wanted to be at the head of. So his his struggle, Mein Kampf, my struggle, is his struggle to become this uh, this great leader. Not only of his party, not only of the folk national party and uh, or folk national movement in Germany in uh, the 1920s, but then of course the great leader who would would lead Germany out of its uh, condition of, as he put it, its condition of misery and and extremity uh, after having lost World War One and dealing with hyperinflation by 1923 and 1924. The, Savings of the middle class are wiped out. Germany is is militarily occupied, in the um, uh, in the rural gebiets in particular. The French moved in and began to extract uh, concessions as a part of the Versailles Treaty. So th- they were feeling feeling quite demoralized at the time. He wants to to hold himself out now in Mein Kampf as the person chosen by destiny 
to lead Germany out of its plight and back to national glory. So that, that's a part of his struggle, is the struggle to become this great, this great uh, political leader for Germany. And of course, it's also a struggle, struggle at multiple levels. It's also a struggle against Germany's alleged enemies. And what becomes uh, painfully clear to anyone who um, who reads Mein Kampf today, and it's a punishing experience. I'll warn, you know, listeners uh, to to uh, to our our show here, if they want to delve into Mein Kampf, they're going to pay a price for it. <laughs> it's, it's it's not an enjoyable read. It's extremely uh, taxing to to just to keep up with uh, the ponderous uh, prose, uh, scatterbrain sort of you know, scattershot sort of approach to covering topics. But if you hang in there and you read it from beginning to end, you will come away with it, as, as I did when I read it in the original German, thinking that uh, the most important thing in the mind of this young figure, this young politician, was um, was to settle accounts with, uh, with Jews. His anti-Semitism is on uh, vivid display already in 1924 when he was writing the first volume of Mein Kampf. The book is actually written in two volumes uh, at least originally, it was written in two volumes. The, the first volume was written by Hitler at Landsberg Prison. Uh, he actually typed it. I've, I've seen, I've been to Landsberg before when I was doing some research for the book and um, saw saw the uh, the uh, um, the typewriter on which he uh, allegedly wrote his uh, wrote his book. as the first volume of Mein Kampf. There was a legend that he had dictated it to Rudolf Hess or someone like that, but that's not not true. He actually typed it. Um, that's volume one. He wrote in prison, and then later, after the publication of volume one in 1925, he then went to the Obersalzberg and specifically to Berchtesgaden and to um, to what would become eventually the Berghof which was one of his major command centers located in the mountains of the Obersalzberg, just above Berchtesgaden. And um, he, uh, he there um, actually dictated his this volume two of, uh, of Mein Kampf to his secretary. And that second volume then was published in 1927. But whether it's volume one, whether it's volume two, his animus toward, the, toward Jews is uh, is just abundantly clear. Uh, it's for me, it's the most impressive thing about reading Mein Kampf in the original, a book that I had not had not even touched really, outside of just scattered references and secondary and secondary literature. I had never read the book until 19, uh, until 2020, and then that became the uh, the stimulus then to um, to the public to the writing and publication of my book, along with John Mikalczyk and Susan Mikalczyk, Hitler's Mein Kampf and the Holocaust. If someone buys this book, what do they get? It is a uh, an anthology, a uh, collection of, of essays that grew out of a symposium that we did back in um, April of 2019 at uh, Boston College. We wanted to do a symposium that would bring together um, you know prominent scholars from uh, really from out from all over the world. As it turned out, most of the scholars came from um, from the United States, from Germany, and from Austria. But we had a fairly nice uh, uh, cross section of uh, of uh, Germanists and uh, a few journalists and, and other other people who uh, who engage with uh, with this topic of uh, of Mein Kampf. 
and and or the um, the history of Nazism and the history of the Third Reich. So we we brought these people together. They presented papers. Then the theme of theme of the conference was Mein Kampf and the Holocaust. We actually got um, presentations on um, topics other than the Holocaust too. There were some people, thinking of Paul Bookbinder in particular, who contributed a uh, an essay to our book, who wrote about Hitler's conception of leadership as it emerges from uh, from Mein Kampf. Uh, other scholars delved into Hitler's um, uh, fraught relationship with uh, uh, with the churches in Germany in the 1930s. That was more of their focus uh, rather than on the Holocaust specifically. So we, we cast we cast a net that we are hoping to be a little little narrower. But as it turned out, we uh, we were able to to reel in some pretty good uh, pretty good essays too that dealt certainly with Mein Kampf, but maybe looked at some of the other other issues, not specifically the Holocaust, but Hitler's attitudes t- uh, towards other subjects, you know, including his uh, approach to politics, his view of himself as the great leader of Germany, the rising leader of Germany, uh, relationships with the churches, as I said, his his view of eugenics, his attitude towards uh, towards the pseudoscience of eugenics, and and so forth. But you, uh, so somebody somebody who buys this book is going to get not just the Holocaust, but also topics uh, related to Mein Kampf that are somewhat peripheral to the Holocaust, but are nonetheless uh, germane, of course, to, to Mein Kampf. How does someone named Bryant end up at Bryant University, unless it's your namesake? I get that question quite often, as you can imagine. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm always tempted, especially when I'm, when I'm talking to students, to kind of keep the question open in their minds. So that they uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe maybe think I'm a more a more important person than I really am. No, it was it was a pure accident. You have a law degree. You have a PhD from Ohio State, a law degree from Emory. Right. Uh, why were is why was it so late for you to get introduced to Mein Kampf? And why did and what was the what were the circumstances specifically of Mein Kampf? Yeah, it it uh, this this question comes up every so often, usually in cocktail parties. But um, I'm glad I'm glad it came up here today. It, it's the kind of book that that very few people actually read, including experts and specialists in this field of um, you know of genocide studies, Holocaust and genocide studies, uh, the history of Germany, modern history of Germany, history of the Holocaust. I've run into very few people, including you know world-renowned scholars who are at the top of their field, who have actually read the book. Interestingly enough, and it's um, I, I was I was among them. I, I I had not really delved into the book until, as I said, 2019, 2020. Actually, it was a little bit earlier. I guess the the conference was in 2019, so I took my first crack at the book. I think in 2017, 2018, and then finished it shortly before. Uh, our conference in 2019, uh, but it uh, it's it's a very very long book, um, and there's a history about the book itself about Mein Kampf, which I we touch on also in our Hitler's Mein Kampf and the Holocaust text, talking a little bit about the history of the book, and then one of our contributors, Otmar Plückinger, one of the world's leading experts on Mein Kampf, has an essay in uh, in our book that that deals uh, uh, in extenso with. Um, um, with the history of Mein Kampf from its composition to to the present time, but basically, publication of the book from 1945 until 2015 was uh, off the table. Right, the the Bavarians held the, um, the copyright and they uh, uh, refused to permit the publication of the book. 
That doesn't mean that the book did not still circulate in Germany. It, it did circulate, but they were typically older copies uh, that you would find in used bookstores. Um, or, you know, once the Internet developed in the 1990s and the early 2000s, you could get, uh, get uh, copies, uh, electronic copies of it online. So it, one of the myths of Mein Kampf is that it was completely suppressed after the war, and that's simply not true. What was not permitted was the republication of it, and that was because the Bavarians wouldn't allow it. They held the copyright, which they really received uh, from the Allies who expropriated all of the, the holdings of Eyre Verlag, which had published Mein Kampf and held the original copyright to it. So the Allies confiscated that. Uh, after 1945, and then transferred everything to uh, to Bavaria, to the Bavarian authorities in the late 1940s. And they just sat on it then and uh, wouldn't uh, wouldn't allow publication. And then you know, under German law, after 70 years, if the um, if the author, you know, the author's passed away at this point, presumably. And at that point, then the, the book enters the public domain. So then 2000, the end of 2015, beginning of 2016, that period of time had elapsed. And um, the Germans had already made made arrangements to have the book published by uh, the Institute for Contemporary History in Munich. They were already bracing for the time when that copyright would uh, would lapse and uh, the book would enter the public domain. So they already in 2013, 12 or 13, they had approached the Munich Institute for Contemporary History, which specializes in studying the Holocaust and the crimes of the Nazis and arranged with them to publish a special edition um, of Mein Kampf. And it was supposed to be the exclusive publication. No other publications <clears throat> would be allowed but that one. And it would appear in early 2016. 2,000 pages long. It's it's a two-volume work. 2,000 pages long. And the reason it's so long is that there are over 3,000 footnotes, annotated footnotes prepared by teams of historians who worked for several years uh, trying to assemble really annotations of the text and responses to things that Hitler asserts in the text. The idea was to try to counterbalance <clears throat> many of Hitler's statements, which, of course, as you would assume, would be quite self-serving. In many cases, were simply false. I mean, his, his aim in writing the book was not to present an accurate history of what happened in his lifetime, but again, to portray himself as the um, the person appointed by uh, providence, appointed by destiny to to rise to the top and lead Germany you know out of her her plight and into the uh, uh, into glory, national glory once again. So he wasn't overly concerned about um, about getting facts right. So the the editors tried to correct mistakes and outright lies and misrepresentations which uh, which uh, uh, interleave the text. And this is one of the reasons, and, and also to provide context for many of Hitler's more cryptic references. So this is why the book is so formidably long. But again, if you can read German, um, and who knows, there might be an English translation at some point. Um, I'm hoping maybe at some juncture they'll do an English translation. It's it's very much worth uh, worth reading for anybody who is really interested in the development of Hitler's thinking about about Jews and about um, what would eventually become you know, official Nazi policy with regard to the Jews by the 1930s and, of course, by the 40s, veering into, into genocide. But uh, one of the theses of our, our book is that Mein Kampf does contain intimations of genocide. If you, if you read it from beginning to end, 
you will see that the book is laden with with foreshadowings. I believe, and my my co-authors uh, also believe, that there are foreshadowings of what would later come to pass. Uh, no outright statements, you know, uh, specifically uh, threatening Jews with with genocide, but a lot of very very suggestive language, which I, I talk about also in the book. So you earlier said you read it in German. How did you know German? Where did you learn that? Oh, it's such a long story, Brian. It's, it's a long, long story. We have some time, though, right? So, yes, we do. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I don't come from a German family. I didn't grow up uh, like quite a, quite a few Americans who have German roots and who actually grow up hearing German in, in, uh, in their household. That was not my situation. Um, I took a little bit of German in college back in the old days. 1980s, um, if you wanted to get a degree in the humanities, I got to, had a degree in English literature. So you you also had to take um, 20 hours at my school. It was 20 hours. Uh, I think that came into uh, four four classes, five hours, five hours each, as I recall. Uh, 20 hours of a foreign language, and then I was in the honors program, so I had to take an additional course. So it was 25 hours all, or 20 yeah 25 hours altogether. Um, of, of German, and uh, it was either that or Latin. I'd taken Latin in high school, and I thought I'd try something different this time. And uh, I, t- I took it in college, and then was was in graduate school, in law school, and also getting a, a master's of theological studies degree at Candler School of Theology. And um, they had a program, it was an exchange program, where they would send a couple of, of their students to the University of Göttingen, and then Göttingen would send a couple of their students back to Emory. Candler School of Theology, and I applied for the program, and you had to show evidence that you actually could speak a little bit of German or that you had you'd been exposed to German, so I was able to get my one of my old professors to write me a letter vouching that I, I had had this exposure to German, so I got got the fellowship and spent a year. I took a leave of absence from my, my legal training and spent a year in Germany studying theology, and my German got pretty good during that time because I was taking courses in German. Uh, and very and struggling, as you can imagine, trying to understand what was going on, but it was really a, a trial by fire. And that's where I really laid the foundation for, for my German. I went back to Germany with the Air Force, was a, a captain in the Air Force, a JAG officer stationed near Rammstein, and uh, did courts martial during the day. And in the evening, I hung out with German friends, and we spoke German the entire time. So three years of that, then going back into a PhD program, and studying uh, texts in German that really cemented the uh, the, the language uh, capability. When when you're around Germans over in Germany or here, as a matter of fact, what do they say about Hitler at this point? When and that you can speak the language, so they can't hide it from you uh, if they wanted to. Yeah. Um, when you say Germans, of course, it depends on the Germans you're talking about. Of course, uh, the, a lot of the people I hang out with are. Um, are, are fairly, you know, broad-minded, you know, humane, democratic people, and uh, they're they're horrified, uh, and I, I think embarrassed and horrified, but at the same time also very much committed to to the opposite of what Nazism stood for. So I, I teach a I teach a course in Nuremberg every summer in July of uh, of each summer, and it's designed for uh, for primarily for American law students and for German law students. So we have a, a mixture of both. And um, we, we interact with the German law students, bring the Americans over there, and, and uh, I'm, I'm always really edified by 
the liberality, and I don't mean that necessarily in a you know a, a Democratic versus Republican sense, but I'm talking about just the, li- the liberal ethos of the young people that I deal with, as well as uh, the you know the people in the hotel where I stay each year and the people that I meet in the street, and uh, meeting with the mayor or meeting with uh, with the the treasurer for the city of of Nuremberg has become a good friend of ours. And uh, just very, very humane people. They have a, a, a programs committed to human rights. They actually uh, confer a, a human rights award each year on a person, uh, you know, who has who has done commendable work in the field of human rights. So I, I and, and the educational system really stresses Holocaust education as a foundational sort of um, um, aspect of their of their primary and secondary education. So it's always in the minds of the Germans. And if you look at, at their political system and legal system since 1949, when West Germany in particular came into being, and uh, look at their constitution, you'll see that so much of their political and legal system is based on an effort to construct a society to make the possibility of another Hitler impossible. You know, so 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 much of their of the of the constitutional structure of their country, uh, from, from the role of the president, the powers of the Reich president, and the powers of the Reich chancellor. Uh, if you compare the, I'm sorry, I said Reich, I meant Bundes, right? The federal federal chancellor and federal president. If you compare that with the Reich's chancellor and the Reich president, you'll see that the powers have been significantly curtailed. Again, in an effort to try to prevent. Um, the conditions that allowed Hitler to become Reich's Chancellor in 1933, and so much of their constitutional law uh, is based upon um, efforts to 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 enshrine in law unassailable rights to uh, to freedom of speech and freedom of assembly, um, and at the same time they they've outlawed seems like a contradiction in terms because of the freedom of speech provisions of their constitution, but they've outlawed uh, the Nazi Party. And in any party that seeks uh, to to espouse intolerant, racist kinds of, uh, of positions, uh, beginning in the 1950s, their um, their Supreme Court, uh, the the Bundestag, along with the Supreme Court, saw to it that the Nazi Party would be illegal, and it remains illegal until the present day. So I think the legacy of National Socialism in Germany is still very much, very much present in the country, and uh, we're living in an era now where. Some of these ideas are beginning to make a, uh, a comeback, contrary to all expectation. I certainly did not foresee this back in the 90s when I was pursuing my doctoral studies. I thought that what I was studying was, was ancient history, kind of like studying the Hittites or the Egyptians. I didn't expect this history to come around again and to reemerge after 70 years. But uh, we're seeing a kind of a, kind of a reemergence of these ideas uh, throughout the world, I mean, certainly in Eastern Europe, even in Germany, there's a, a right-wing party that's uh, doing quite well at the polls, the Alternative for Germany, the, yeah, the Alternative für Deutschland, the, the Alternative for Germany party, which really is a kind of a right-wing, some people would say neo-Nazi party that kind of hides its neo-Nazism just in anti-immigrant rhetoric, but that is making a uh, kind of a, a, a making hay right now in Germany. And then, of course, in our own country, where we're seeing a stirring of extreme right-wing movements um, uh, in recent years. So I think that a study of Mein Kampf might be, uh, might be timely after all. And that was one of the reasons why we decided to have our, uh, our symposium in 2019 and then to publish the book Hitler's Mein Kampf and the Holocaust, which came out in 2022. 
I want to read. I've written down some things that he says in Mein Kampf, <clears throat> and not for any particular reason. It just kind of popped up, and and some of them may seem minor to you, but I wanted you to maybe put them in context. Here's <clears throat> here's one quote from uh, Hitler. Every great movement on this earth owes its growth to great orators, not to great writers. What's, what, what Does that mean anything to you when you read something like that from him? Yeah, it does. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what he's talking about is the difference between writing and speaking. He, he's a, he was really a... Um, an uh, inelegant, in, in I'm, I'm putting this euphemistically, right? He was an inelegant writer, and it, it was commented upon at the time. Uh, even Goebbels, who adored Hitler, wrote in his diary that Hitler just didn't write particularly well. He, he actually has a little section of his diary where he talks about Mein Kampf, and he says, you know, the Fuhrer wrote this book. Uh, there, were, there are parts of it that are, that are the, the ideas are great, but his prose style is really awkward. Uh, he, he, He's a much better speaker than he is a writer. And, and Hitler actually even talked about this. You would think that a man who was, who was so enamored with his own reputation would, would be reluctant to you know, engage in any kind of self-examination, serious self-examination. But at one point he did, and he actually confessed that uh, he felt he, didn't, he, he wasn't able to write well. He felt that his, his, his most effective style of communication was getting up in front of large groups of people and talking to them. And connecting with uh, with them through the spoken word, uh, the written word was something that he found challenging, and his his prose style was so awkward. And again, anybody who tries to tackle Mein Kampf will be impressed. Um, even in English translation, it's hard to hard to clean it up. In German, it's even worse. Uh, you have to wade through um, just to, just to extremely long, clunky, awkward sentences. Uh, the sentences do not hang together logically. There, there's not a sense of flow in his work. He'll 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 jump from one topic to another without any any transition, and it's a it's a, a real challenge for the reader. So I I think that's what he was driving at when he was talking about this difference between oratory and uh, and the written word. How much does that? I know it's only in German, but how much does that two thousand page <clears throat> anthology of uh, Mein Kampf? that's been out for the last couple of years cost. You know, it's not that expensive. I, I think the Germans really strove to make it, uh, to make it affordable. I mean, it's keep in mind, 2000 pages, hard bound, plain gray cloth. Um, I think I paid 75 euros. I can't recall what the exchange rate was at that time. It's roughly one to one right now. It fluctuates of course every day, but it was, at the time I, I purchased the book, I think it pay, I paid maybe eighty five dollars for it. How much? How many have they sold? Do you have any idea? Well, the, the, the initial printing was four thousand copies, and they were not expecting anybody other than libraries to uh, to maybe acquire the book. But it sold out almost immediately. It actually became a bestseller. Hard to believe, but it did. It became a bestseller in Germany. So, so they went through several more printings, and I don't know at this stage. I haven't checked the, the recent sales quotas or the sales numbers for from Mein Kampf, but uh, it was selling very briskly for, for the first several years of its uh, republication. Fill in the blanks on this one. I read that it only sold 10,000 copies back in 1925 or whenever, right around uh, the year after it was published. But then you see the figure, I think in your book, 12 million have sold. Right. Who bought them? 
Yeah, it, again, there's a long history here, and I would refer interested uh, listeners to uh, to our book, and especially Otmar Plöckinger's essay, where he talks about the history of the book and how it went through multiple printings and reprintings and how it grew in popularity over time. Initially, nobody paid much attention to it. There were a few scattered uh, reviews that were very, very critical. They, they just panned the book for being uh, unreadable. And... Um, and the book went largely unnoticed until 1930. And not surprisingly, um, the book really began to take off in terms of its sales as the Nazi Party made its electoral breakthrough, which was, is dated to 1930. Had a lot to do with the Great Depression, the effects of the Depression, and uh, the fact that, uh, uh, that the government under Hindenburg and a series of chancellors was just not equal to the task of wrestling with the Great Depression. So the Germans began to look for alternatives, and the Nazis are one of the parties that really benefited from this. So as as the Nazi party began its meteoric ascent in 1930, then we began to see interest in, in Mein Kampf growing. And they also combined the two volumes. As I mentioned before, there were, the books were published separately. There was volume one in 1925 and volume two in 1927. They combined these two books then into a so-called Volksausgabe, a, 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 a people's edition in 1930. And that was a combined book. And uh, so th this has also led to the, uh, the misimpression over the years that Mein Kampf was a single book published uh, originally, when in fact it was two volumes. It was actually bundled together and published as, as a single work in 1930. And that is the book that then began to, to, really, to really sell well, not only in Germany, but increasingly uh, in inter on international markets as well. And it seems to be connected with Hitler's rising popularity and the success of his party at the polls. The copy that I read, not all, but part of, was on the Gutenberg site on, uh, on the web. And do you have any recommendations on what's the best copy to read? I know it, it is available free on the web, but there are probably places you can buy the book. Right. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I've never read it on the web. I've only read the um, the paper copy. I have. I have. Uh, there's there's the, the famous translation in English by Monheim. I think it was published. I can't even recall the date now. In the forties, sometime. I can't recall the precise date. It was uh, it was published uh, in translation, and the translation's pretty good. I mean, it's it's not perfect, but it's still it's pretty good from what I can tell because I've gone through line by line and checked his his uh, translation against the original. Um, that is still in print after all these years. Uh, if somebody is interested in reading uh, the English copy, I would recommend the Monheim translation. Is, and again, it really hasn't been improved on since the 1940s. The German uh, versions of Mein Kampf really didn't change very much. Um, I mean, you, you hear a lot of speculation by various people that there were revisions to the book that were made. And yeah, I think they, they might have cleaned up a few cosmetic things, a few errata from the original. But really, uh, the meaning of the text, the wording of the text has not changed very much from, from 19, the original 1925 and 1927 volumes. So, yeah, I can't really, because I'm not qualified to recommend a specific online source for the book. But if you're looking for the English, an English translation, I, I would go with the Monheim. And if you speak German, and you really are willing to engage with this text, I highly recommend doing what I did. If you have the time, I, I just dedicated about two, two and a half years to reading the 2,000 pages of the um, um, of the Institute for Contemporary History's reissue of the book published in um, 
early, I think it came out in early 2016, January of 2016. Adolf Hitler was born 20 April 1889, died 30 April 1945. He was 56 years old. Another quote from the book. Again, this is at random. Does anybody honestly believe that human progress originates in the composite brain of the majority and not in the brain of the individual personality? Another key idea of Mein Kampf, he was intent on uh, drawing contrasts. His his style of thinking is very binary. Uh, You'll you'll find throughout Mein Kampf that he will draw draw a contrast between this thing and that thing, and there's no there's no middle. Right? There's no no gray area in between the, those two things. And we see that here in, in the contrast he draws between the mass. And by the mass, he means the mass of humanity. You know, he's talking about the masses that that the that the uh, the communists in particular wanted to organize, you know, and in Hitler's mind, at least wanted to uh, to launch into revolutions to overthrow um, to overthrow governments. So that was that was the mass, uh, the mass of people, which was not particularly um, talented, not particularly skilled, not particularly insightful, uh, not particularly industrious. So he contrasts the mass then with the great man, the great person, the great individual who this goes back to classical romanticism of the 18th and 19th century. You know, in Romanticism, you had this ideal of the great individual who typically was an artist. That's how the Romantics, at least initially, understood uh, understood the great man. He was an artist. Typically, it was he. Today, we'd say he and he or she. But uh, at the time, they thought in terms of men. Uh, so the great artist was the was the great man who, um, through his genius, would bring brilliant works of art into being that had never been seen before. So this is Leonardo da Vinci. This is Michelangelo. But eventually the genius concept mutates uh, from art into other areas too, including politics. And so there were those in the late 18th and early 19th century who believed that uh, that Napoleon was, uh, was a romantic hero, although Napoleon himself completely rejected romanticism. He was a classicist at heart. But a lot of romantics thought of him as being this great genius who uh, you know, kind of like a Julius Caesar or a, or an Alexander the Great, somebody who comes along as Hitler portrays himself in Mein Kampf. The genius comes along and then imposes his will on reality. That's that's what separates the great individual, the great man, from the mass. The great the great person, the great man, doesn't just follow the crowd the way that the masses do. They just kind of go along with whatever's happening. The great man, through his creative genius imposes his conception of how things should be. He imposes that upon the world and then pushes reality in the direction towards what he thinks is the ideal society or the ideal reality. Hitler, so that's a very stark contrast that Hitler uh, draws in, in Mein Kampf. Hitler wrote this almost 100 years ago. I'm going to read it because it you'll, you'll see it, it has a, a, a ring to some of the things we're hearing today. Day after day, the bourgeois world are witnesses to the phenomenon of spreading poison among the people through the instrumentality of the theater and the cinema, gutter journalism and obscene books, and yet they are astonished at the deplorable moral standards and national indifference of the masses, as if the cinema bilge and the gutter press 
and such like could inculcate knowledge of the greatness of one's country apart entirely from the earlier education of the individual. Yeah, there's a broader context. Uh, what, what you're saying comes straight out of Mein Kampf, of course, but there is a broader context for this. And this will become apparent through the 1920s and especially in the 1930s once the Nazis come to power. The, the, Goebbels in particular, Joseph Goebbels, the minister of propaganda, is going to be uh, deeply involved in trying to expel Jews, German Jews, from the cultural arena, from the theaters, from, 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 uh, from publication, from journalism. Uh, they really tried, this is a part of their effort, to purge the Jews from, uh, from German society. They tried to expel uh, German Jews from, uh, from all cultural um, domains. So I, it's pretty clear if you read through Mein Kampf that Hitler believes the Jews have taken over um, the newspapers, they've taken over the theaters, uh, movies, of course, are beginning at this time, so he, he will accuse the Jews of poisoning movies as well. There, there's no field of, of cultural endeavor in Hitler's mind that is not tainted by the Jews. This is why it's so important for him that a, a, um, a government with himself at the helm of that government come into power that can push the Jews out of German society in order to purify it of this, this poison. So I think that's what he's at least indirectly referring to when he talks about, you know, the, the lack of morality, you know, l looking for moral principles in, in the cinema and in, in literature. All of that is tainted in his mind. It's all tainted by the Jews. So this becomes another reason why there has to be a reckoning with them. Don't forget this: the subtitle of Mein Kampf, Mein Kampf, My Struggle, colon, eine Rechnung, German for a reckoning. Right. He's, he, he was going to reckon with the enemies of Germany who have brought Germany to this deplorable state that it is in today. And he's going to be the leader to do that. And of course, the primary enemy, not the only one, but the primary one that he has in mind, are the Jews. So he was in prison in 1925, 24? Uh, yeah, it, he was in pretrial confinement. Don't forget, he tried to overthrow the state. Right in in uh, on November ninth, nineteen twenty three, is not successful. That's the beer hall putsch. Um, he's arrested and placed in pretrial confinement in the Landsberg prison in Bavaria, and uh, so he stays in pretrial confinement then until his trial. In I think it was in April of nineteen twenty four, is his trial, and then he's given he's given a five year sentence, which you know. It's not nothing, right? A five-year sentence in, in April. But of course, he only spends, if you take it, if you add up all the months together that he spends in, in jail, including pretrial confinement, it comes out, he's, he's paroled in, uh, in the fall of 1924. He's only in prison, I think, 13 months in total. Rudolf Hess was in December, prison. It was in December of 24 that, he's, that he's, he's paroled, yeah. Rudolf Hess was in prison with him. Why? Yeah, because of his participation in the Birhol Putsch. In the early part of Mein Kampf, he writes on and on and on about Austria. Why, why does he spend so much time on Austria, and what did he think of Austria in comparison to Germany, and when did he go to Germany? Yeah, he, of course, he is Austrian. He was born in Braunau am Inn, which is a little town, a picturesque town, actually. I pass it every year when we go down to, uh, to the Bechtesgaden. It's uh, right across the river, the Inn River from, from Germany. 
He was an ethnic German. Uh, of course, he grew up at a time when, when this was the Austrian Empire under Franz Josef when he was a young man uh, before World War One. This was a, a multi, uh, multi-ethnic cosmopolitan imperial structure consisting of numerous uh, ethnic groups. And the Germans, of course, were a dominant uh, group within within that uh, that medley of uh, of ethnic um, groups who made up the empire but of course hitler and we don't have a lot of evidence for for in fact we have no evidence for, for anti-semitism prior to 1919 but one can assume that he grew up being surrounded uh, by these ethnic influences if not in his own town he would have seen it when he went to vienna as a young man when he was 18 years old he actually went to vienna after his um, his parents had died trying to uh, to become an artist there's that connection with romanticism again right that i mentioned before he was uh, at his heart and he talked about this quite often in his tischgespräche the table talks that he did in the 30s and 40s uh, but also in mein kampf he talks about really being an artist at heart and i think that was probably an accurate and accurate uh, self-assessment i think that his primary um, inclination was towards the arts and of course he was not able to uh, to gain admission to uh, the Vienna Academy of the Arts. With the, he filed two applications with them, both of which were rejected. So he just um, he painted postcards in the streets of Vienna and uh, sold those uh, to a dealer. And it was that with his orphan pension, then he was able to keep himself alive. In 1912, then he relocates to, to Munich. And he actually was in Munich at the time in 1914 when... August of 1914, when World War One breaks out, there's a, a very famous picture. You may have seen it, Brian, on the Odeonplatz in downtown Munich. And only after only after the war did somebody notice that there are all these faces in the crowd. It was right when uh, when uh, the war declaration was announced to the public, and you can you can tell that people are this enormous crowds, very excited. And if if you take a magnifying glass, you can home in on this this white face, very pale face, in the midst of this sea of faces, and further inspection reveals that it is in fact the, the very young Adolf Hitler, and he looks wrapped in this in this photograph. He just looks uh, ecstatic, and he even writes in Mein Kampf that he was uh, he he actually said he fell he fell on his knees in gratitude that he had a chance now to fight for for Germany. And is eventually he eventually tries to join the military. His his application initially is rejected, and then they draft him. Right, um, military intelligence there <laughs> reject him and then draft him. So he he's brought into the into the military, and actually serves um, as a courier for uh, in the German uh, the German army up until the end of the war. When this network did a special on uh, Germany and East Germany, right when the wall came down. I remember talking to uh, the Jewish leader in the country at the time. How many Jews are there in Germany? And he said there were 30,000. So I went back and looked at some of the figures. Correct me on any of this that you uh, know better. In 1933, Germany had 523,000 Jews. The Jews were really heavy in Poland with 5.5 million, 2.5 million in the Soviet Union, only 9.5 million throughout the entire European area, and 15 million all over the world. Uh, what is it today, and how does a Jew live in Germany comfortably today? Right. I mean, the the, the figures are uh, are just a, a few a few tens of thousands. Right. It's it never the number never rebounded 
to to the figure it was it was at in, in 1933, which was 500. And yeah, your your figure I think was more is more or less right. It was over 500,000. Of course, what happens then is that figure is whittled down between 1933 and 1941, because from 1930 uh, 37, especially after Kristallnacht 38. The official policy of the government is one of uh, immigration and expulsion. They're really pushing Jews out of Germany. And at this point, that includes also Austria. Uh, the Anschluss, March of 1938, uh, brings brings uh, Austria now into the Reich. Uh, Adolf Eichmann uh, will later be uh, tried in Jerusalem, uh, was was appointed at that time the head of a of an immigration office for Jews in Vienna. And this is really where Eichmann begins to really distinguish himself as a as an expert in Jewish affairs. He really forces the immigration of tens of thousands of Jews uh, fr- from Austria. And then a replica of that office is set up in Berlin and placed under Reinhard Heydrich, who, of course, by 1941 will be the head of the final solution, the, the genocide of the Jews. Um, so there was a pairing away of the Jews from Germany even before 1941, a, a forced expulsion. So the, the numbers, uh, numbers dwindled even further. And the, the number today, there, a lot of Jews have actually gone back to Germany, interestingly enough, but still it's nowhere near what it was uh, in 1933. I want to take advantage of having an expert here and just looking for short answers. Uh, th- these are definitions of words we hear all the time. What is Reich? Reich is uh, you can you can translate it I think as empire. What is Führer? Führer is leader. It's actually uh, uh, his title Der Führer uh, comes from uh, from Mussolini, who called himself Il Duce. Uh, Il Duce was comes before the Führer. Uh, Hitler was influenced considerably by uh, by Mussolini, and he simply Germanizes uh, the t- the term Il Duce, uh, Der Führer, the leader. How do you define Nazi? Um, it's actually a uh, a term that is consists of, of, of bits bits and pieces of other words that are stitched together. Um, so it, I guess the term is a portmanteau term. So it's it's uh, National Socialist German Workers Party was the official title of of the party. What do they mean by socialism? In that context, back in the forties, right? Yeah, yeah. This this is a complex topic. I'll try to make it as straightforward (laughs) as possible. Keep in mind that Hitler was Austrian. He spent a lot of his time in Vienna as a young man, especially as a eighteen, nineteen, twenty year old. He was exposed to anti-Semitic parties at that time, and individuals who actually used anti-Semitism as a way to um, to attract votes. Quite frankly. Uh, there were anti-Semitic people who were turned on by these ideas, and so these political parties come into, come into being who use these the technique of anti-Semitism to attract support. One such party were, uh, and not everybody in the Christian Socialist Party was anti-Semitic, but some were, and some of its leaders were. And there was one in particular named Karl Lueger, who becomes the mayor of uh, of, uh, of Vienna during the time that Hitler, the young Hitler, is in Vienna. And Lueger was uh, famous, at least in part, for for being anti-Semitic. But he was he, he had a, a type of anti, anti-Semitism which is nothing like the Nazi type. He wasn't a virulent anti-Semite. He used anti-Semitism as a way to appeal to certain individuals for whom that was an important issue. 
And in fact, he famously said at one point that he would determine who was Jewish and who was not. In other words, he didn't really spend a lot of time once he came to power you know, fretting all that much about the Jews. But Hitler was able to see how um, how this, this Christian socialist leader, Lueger, was able to instrumentalize anti-Semitism as a way to attract votes and then to you know vault into political power. He was uh, very coveted by he, I mean Hitler, was very covetous of the success of the Social Democrats in Germany and the socialists in Austria and being able to to rally the workers in particular and to, and to uh, appeal to them in order to come to power. So um, my belief is that Hitler ch- you know, chose this concept of national socialism, emphasizing socialism as a way to draw the workers into supporting the movement. In fact, if you look at a, as his policies, he really wasn't a socialist. The Nazis were brawling with socialists and communists in the streets of Weimar, Germany, in the 1920s and 30s, uh, they hated each other. Right? The socialists would go to the beer hall where Hitler and others were speaking, and they would heckle him, and then fights would break out. And these were real fights with, bro- with broken bottles and knives. They were extremely violent. Uh, so there was no love lost between the socialists and the national socialists. It was just, yet again, another example of propaganda, which Hitler and, and Goebbels really brought to, uh, to, uh, to a science during their time as uh, 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 trying to come to power, then eventually when they were in power, they were master propagandists. I think that the, the use of the term socialism was yet another example of his uh, his lying, his misrepresentation in order to achieve a political goal, in this case, to draw the workers into supporting them. What's Weimar? Weimar is the uh, the government. It's, it's really a, it's a hard word to attach a specific definition to. Um, in the political sense, it is... Um, the system that was set up after the uh, the imperial Kaiser Reich, the, the rule of the Kaiser was overthrown in November of 1918. And then uh, the Germans set up uh, in 1919 a new Republican government. Uh, it was called the Weimar Republic because the Constitution was created, that, that really more or less created the state, uh, was, was written and decreed in the city of Weimar in the eastern part of Germany. And for that reason, it was called the Weimar Republic. It was uh, it was really born, as I, as I write in, uh, in our, our Mein Kampf book, it was really born under a, uh, an ill star from, from day one because it was regarded by the extreme right wing and even people in the middle too, not, not just right wingers. Uh, the Weimar was, Republic was viewed as being an imposition upon the German people by the Allies. Uh, Hitler referred to it in his stump speeches as a diktat, as a... a like a, like a dictated piece, uh, something that was imposed from the outside on Germany and, f- and really shoved down their throats. And so he invaded against the Weimar Republic uh, in, uh, through the 1920s into the 1930s, as did other right-wing figures in the, in the, the political uh, scene in Germany at that time. I've watched a lot of Hitler, and because you speak German, first of all, I would just say... It's. I find his speaking style very offensive. Not worth. Not uh, interesting to listen to, other than the horrible things he did. But what does it sound like if you're a German speaker? Yeah, it, I, I talk about this with my students. I think that almost all Americans, myself included, you know, our generation, uh, growing up watching documentary films or watching the old movie tone, you know, films that were. Uh, played in movie theaters in the 1940s in the United States, showing Hitler 
you know, screaming with the spittle flying. And he, uh, he looks like a lunatic and he sounds like, like, like some, just a raving madman. Uh, that was always how it struck me as, as a young person listening to him. Uh, keep in mind that those are snippets of, uh, of speeches that he gave. Um, he might give a two hour speech and build up, you know, to that crescendo at the end. And that's, that's then the, the, the film loop that we, that we oftentimes see. If you watch his films, films of him speaking from beginning to end, he actually began his, his speeches in a, um, a very reserved and subdued tone of voice. And I actually, I can't understand what he's saying at the end of his speeches when he's screaming and gesticulating. I can't make out a word of what he's saying. It just sounds like he's barking at that point. But if you listen to the earlier parts of the speech when he's talking in a much more moderate sort of tone, um, and his voice is intact at that point, he had a tendency to get hoarse. So he would talk for two hours, he would lose his voice, and then he would start screaming because he couldn't otherwise... Uh, uh, he couldn't communicate verbally at that point. He had to scream because he couldn't talk in a moderate tone. He had lost his voice. So, again, I think this conveys an impression that can be, I think, sometimes a misimpression. I mean, assuredly, he was a fanatic. A, uh, you know, politically, he was a fanatical figure, a, a rabid anti-Semite. And by the 1940s, uh, you know, a, a genocidaire. He was a person committed to genocide and the commission of genocide. So he was an evil man, um, but um, you know his, his style of speech was not always so intemperate. Uh, oftentimes, it was much more subdued, especially early early on in the speech. I noticed that he he talks a lot about things like idleness and hunger and poverty. And here's a sentence again out of context, but I'm sure you'll have a, a, a explanation on this. But the evil culminates when the hu- this is from Mein Kampf. But the evil culminates when the husband goes his own way from the beginning of the week, and the wife protests simply out of love for the children. Then there are quarrels and bad feeling, and the husband takes to drink, accordingly as he becomes estranged from his wife. Why was he writing that? What was you know he never married until the end. What was he talking about, and why would he? have that view yeah th- this is an example of the weird digressions that uh, that crop up continually in the text of Mein Kampf this is one of the reasons the book was so long um, yeah he- he'll-, he'll break it into these uh, these digressions dealing with something like marriage for example yeah, and the point really what he was trying to address himself to was uh, the problem of alcoholism in Germany at that time, which really was a social ill, and uh, not just in Germany, but it was a social ill in the United States as well. Let's not forget about the temperance movement and the and prohibition, which was going on in the United States at the same time as he was writing Mein Kampf. And similar problems were uh, beleaguering Germany, uh, and especially after the the loss of World War One. There were a lot of really dejected people, uh, not just because of the war that was bad enough, but uh, but then you have the have the miserable economy with the hyperinflation in 1923 and the destruction of the savings of the middle classes. So a lot of people turn to to the bottle as a way to self-medicate. And I think that's what he was referring to in that in the section that you're talking about. But that's just a really good example of of these um, uh, of, of the, the, these apostrophes that he will make every so often. He, he does the same thing 
with with other topics. He, he spends at one point in volume two, I, I counted it up. I think it was thirty or thirty-five pages, just talking about syphilis as a as a social ill. Thirty-five out of out of the blue, just begins talking about. He was talking about one thing about Laban's realm, about the need to deal with Russia, or to, you know. And then suddenly he breaks into this uh, into this digression into syphilis for thirty pages, and then he goes back and resumes his his discussion of geopolitics uh, thereafter. Just another example of how haphazard and disorganized the book was. Before I forget it, I didn't ask you this: Where is Bryant University? Smithfield, Rhode Island. What's that close to? It's it's in northwest Rhode Island. Uh, so if you know where Providence is, it's just northwest of Providence. It's uh, close to Connecticut. It's uh, Connecticut and Massachusetts are maybe a five ten minute drive from our house. We're in, not too far from campus. How long have you been there? Been at Bryant for seventeen years, almost seventeen years, but sixteen and a half years now. Your chapter in this book is called "The Auroras of the Final Solution." Uh, intimate, intimate. Why am I not that? I can't even say the word. Intimations. Intimations thank you. Yep. Of yep. genocide in Mein Kampf. Um, why did you choose to write that in this book? It has, I think, what, some 16 chapters? Yeah, yeah. I I, uh, I, I, I chose my topic. Really, this is what I presented on at our symposium. And then we uh, we took the papers that people had presented on and had them flesh them out a little bit and then published them in this, uh, this Mein Kampf and the Holocaust book. But for me, I wanted to... Um, because I had been reading Mein Kampf, and I began, my, I, I went through this this uh, uh, this odyssey, uh, in kind of a, I don't know if it's an intellectual odyssey or, or how you want to describe it, but it was really a, a almost a conversion experience in terms of how I, I looked at, at 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 Hitler's journey towards the final solution, which is really what I was most interested in. You know, to what extent did did Mein Kampf um, foreshadow? what would happen later on. Remember, Mein Kampf is written in the mid-20s. Uh, the Final Solution is launched in 1941 and 42. So there's a considerable gap, 15, 16 years, between the book, Mein Kampf, and then the occurrence of the genocide and Auschwitz and Treblinka and so forth. So I wanted to see if there was some sort of a connection. And I was really, really surprised at what I was reading. I mean, by the time I finished the book, I thought to myself, quite frankly, the impression I had was that Mass murder was in his mind. He does. He doesn't say it. He doesn't say that we. You know, when you know, when I come to power, I'm going to kill the Jews. I'm going to put them on rail cars and send them to Eastern Europe to be gassed in gas chambers. He doesn't say that. But the book is is teeming with violent imagery and portrayals of the Jews, which dehumanize them and identify them with all of the awful things that Europeans throughout their history have dealt with. You know, from uh, from the Black Death. To, uh, to 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 venereal disease, to um, to, uh, to 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 bacilli, to, to infections, to, to to child mortality, to you you name it, whatever awful thing has uh, uh, beset the human race, he identifies with the Jews, and it's it's page after page after page of this, and it's not just an occasional theme; it's just not a a, a one-off sort of reference that he makes on page five hundred and twenty. It never returns to again. No, it's it is the uh, I'll use a, a German word. It's a light motif. It's a dominant theme. It's a dominant motif that runs throughout the book, and it comes up over and over again. And so, reading that, I wanted to talk about it 
in uh, in an essay and by the auroras of the final so by aurora i go back to the the greek you know goddess aurora uh rosy fingered aurora she was called in uh in greek literature so the the dawn in other words so are we seeing in mein kampf kind of the the first glimmers of the dawn of of what will become genocide later on and so this is this is why i i I wanted to write this essay and uh, contribute that to the book. The title of the book is Hitler's Mein Kampf and the Holocaust, A Prelude to Genocide. Um, what's This will be the last question. I'll, I'll let you go. But what's the sure. best thing that came from the conference and the book as far as what you intended to happen? Yeah, that, that's, that's tough. Uh, I think there are a lot of different things that came from it, including this interview, by, by the way. Um, there's been all kinds of great things that have come from the book. I, I think we struck at a time when the fire was hot and the moment was was ready. Um, again, in part because we're seeing a reemergence of many of the things that Hitler wrote about uh, in a much more positive light. I would mention right the 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 uh, the, the hatred of immigrants, the hatred of, of minority groups, the the glorification of the nation state and, 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 and the use of the government as a way to settle scores with different groups, um, aggressive foreign policies and geopolitics. These are all themes that run, uh, that run through Mein Kampf. And as we've seen in recent, probably the past decade, past 10, 15 years, we see a, a returning of fascism in particular. It may not be called fascism. It might be marketed under different, different names and titles, but really it doesn't, the, the word doesn't really matter. It's the reality underlying the word that counts. And uh, these are these are fascistic sorts of ideas, the purity of the people, the the, the hostility towards outsiders. Um, so I, I think we published the book at a time that was uh, that was the right time for the book. And as I'm discovering now, there was another recent event that um, has occurred that has drawn more attention to to Mein Kampf, and so I'm, I'm also appearing on other podcasts, trying to trying to address the relevance of Mein Kampf specifically to what's going on in the Hamas Israel conflict right now. There was a, uh, a Hamas fighter who was killed in Hamas a few days ago. Apparently, the uh, the IDF found uh, found his body, and on his person was a, an Arabic translation of Mein Kampf. And uh, so I've been contacted by various um, podcast uh, uh, organizations who are interested in doing, kind of exploring the implications of Mein Kampf for Hamas and, and its ideology. And this is actually something that I need to educate myself on. I, I don't know that all that much about Hamas. I know a, a lot about Mein Kampf, but much less about about Hamas. So this is something that I'm trying to, to put together in my own head so that I can speak uh uh, informatively and helpfully about that topic. So this is yet another, you know, consequence of our of our symposium. I think it, think it was convened at the right time, and uh, hopefully it'll continue to resonate. You did a documentary in connection with this. Where can you get the documentary? Come again? I d- didn't catch what you said. I said you did a documentary. Yes. It says, and where can one get that documentary? Where can you find it? Yeah, uh, I don't know if it's available on Amazon.com or not. Um, I know that my uh, my colleague John Mikalczyk, who is the filmmaker and the director and producer of the film, certainly has has copies of it. I would urge people if they can't find it on um, on Amazon to uh, 
perhaps just to send a uh, an email to John Mikalczyk at Boston College. You could also send it to me, and I could always send it uh, or forward your email to John, and he might have some idea. I know that there was a firm that was mar- trying to market the film, and it, it may have been a foreign marketing firm that was involved in marketing the film. And I think they have a website, and I think it's on the film is on their website. So John would be able to direct you to that. Dr. Michael S. Bryant of Bryant University, thank you so much for filling in the blanks for us. It's been a great pleasure to be with you. I've, I've always, always enjoyed C-SPAN and book notes in particular, so it's a, a real thrill to be on your show. Thank you, Professor. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.